and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode we're going to be looking at famous racing names. However, we've had a lot of feedback after last week's episode including the disappointment of Cannonball Run and thankfully somebody has come to our aid and that somebody has released apex one the secret race across america this is a documentary that has been 10 or more years in the making at least this covers uh, alex roy and dave maher's run across america from new york to la to break the old cannonball run record um said by david yeam and doug turner uh I want to say early 80s. Can't remember when it is. It's a wonderful documentary that discusses the... It it discusses that coast-to-coast race record-setting run where a bunch of guys in the 70s decided that they were going to use the new interstate system in the States like the Germans used the Autobahn for sustained high-speed driving to prove that it's safe, to prove that good drivers in well-looked-after good cars can drive at speeds above 55 miles an hour. And so the challenge was laid down, how fast can you get from New York to LA? And this took the form of what was called the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Run. Have I said that right? Is that the whole name? I think it was Memorial Run, yes. Yeah. So Cannonball Baker was a driver who in the late, 30s or or, or, um, did a run across the country uh, in what looked like a steam powered car (laughs) and I think it took him I don't know five weeks or something insane like that Um, but gradually the time taken for this run coast to coast has come down and down and in the 70s the cannibal run as it became to be known brought the time down into the the low 30 hour mark it was a pretty serious effort you've got people in ferrari daytona's most famously i think um there's guys in in modded corvettes there's a guy in a ferrari 308 um the documentary covers both alex roy and dave maher's record setting attempt in 2005 but interspersed with that it goes back to the time of the original cannibal run the the coast-to-coast runs there and what latterly became the u.s express runs and gives you a history lesson mm. and it's a wonderful history lesson because you get to see a completely different era of motoring with you know cars that i'm not sure i would trust running at 100 <laughs> plus mile an hour speeds even the ferraris you think i'm sure they were good for that for a little while but for the kind of average speed you need to do in order to go from one side of the country to the other in how many thousands of miles is it uh, three well, three, three thousand, thousand? yeah it's an awfully long way Particularly for two Brits who live in a, a slightly soggy country that's probably less than a thousand miles top to bottom, to even contemplate the kind of distance driving that this encompasses is is kind of crazy. Um, the Apex One Secret Race Across America documentary really digs into why these drivers wanted to break this record, and I found that fascinating. The, the line about um, 
using the interstates like the Germans use the Autobahn really rang true for these guys. It was clear they were serious about doing it and doing it safely, doing it with without getting caught up uh, by John Q. Law, I think one of the guys <laughs> yes. calls him, which is a fabulous turn of phrase. Uh, they do mention, and I'm not sure if this was for legal reasons when they were being filmed, that yes, we're going to uh, be driving across at 55 miles an hour. <laughs> Uh, the famous American speed limit, which I don't think is actually 55 in every state, but it's across a lot of states, it's 55. Um, you get to see wonderfully grainy film footage of back in the day, the briefings before they left them, you know, punching their cards and then driving off. And there's even some con- some footage of the cars from helicopters. I'm not quite sure how they arranged that. Old cars doing the run along the interstate and you see kind of what you see with the the Roy Maha record. You see one car going very fast and it's a little 20 pixel dot <laughs> and there's some big 200 pixel dot trucks along there. It's um, One thing we should mention is, of course, all the footage in this is not glorious high def that we might come to expect of a, of a recording done in contemporary times. Even back in 2005, you know, video technology was good for the time and they'd got a lot of lipstick cams and so on and handy cams and DV cams, but the resolution is so low mm. by comparison to what we used to today in, in even the, the crappiest of GoPro videos. So everything is a bit blurry, everything is washed out. They've done mm. the best job they can in matching it up. Um, and it tells a great story about why people want to go for this record and how different people approached it. I've found that Alex Roy's approach is surprisingly cerebral with all of his Excel charts and his um, you know weather mapping software and all that kind of thing. He clearly is looking to reduce the risk. And there's a wonderful scene where his co-driver, Dave Maher, is talking about the... Um, the speeds they were able to hit when they had a trial run. And he said, oh, it's, you know, it's very rare that we, we get to do 100 miles an hour. It's not for very long, and then we're back down. And if this were a Hollywood movie, the camera would cut to Dave Martin <laughs> looking directly in the camera because he just says, I intend to change that. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he is clearly the harder, more confident driver of the two. But the things that sink home are... For any of them, the modern drivers, the latter-day drivers, and the, the the guys who did it back in the day, the kind of speeds you need to sustain in order to have an average speed in record-beating time. You know, you need an average of around 90 miles per hour. But if you're in traffic, if you get caught behind a truck, if the weather comes in, you cannot do 90 miles an hour. So you need to be doing 130, 140, 150 to get that average coming back up. And those kinds of speeds on a dual lane interstate that's full of truckers and other cars, not to mention trying to stay away from the police, it just blows my mind. It's crazy. And I think one thing that they did really well, the filmmakers did really well, is that there is contemporary footage from now, which is glorious high def, but there's not too much, so you don't get pulled in and out of it too much. There's a lot of stuff that was filmed in 2005, 2006 from the car itself, but also going and doing interviews with people who, as the credits roll, you find out have subsequently sadly passed away. So you get a lot of first-hand, not just information, but reflections on what it was like to do those races and to do those speeds. And I think cutting between the footage from the 70s and 80s, from 2005, 2006 and 2019, 
because you keep chopping and changing, I think you get used to that idea that it's period footage in effect you know you don't think oh god this isn't in high def or this looks really bad it's that's almost how you tell which era you're in and they've been really subtle i think using the footage from 2019 using ice t's voiceover which is a slightly odd choice but i think actually works quite well it works really well for me i think it helps because i've seen ice t's um something from nothing the art of rap uh, documentary which he he voices that and presents it. Uh, it's a great documentary. Nothing about cars. It's just a really <laughs> great documentary about music. No, it doesn't matter if you like rap or not. I highly recommend seeking that out. But he has a good voice for narration mm. when it's something that is ever so slightly naughty or illegal. There's something <laughs> yes. about the fact that it's Ice T doing it. Yeah. Um, it works for me. I know some people who have seen the movie already don't like the idea that it's Ice-T narrating. I think it really works. And there's not much voiceover. There really no. isn't. It's a, a lot of this is told from those uh, those interviews done back in 2005 uh, from the point of view of those people who ran it, talking about their runs back in the day. And then there's an awful lot of footage from back in the early, mid and late 70s as well that mm. works. So they don't need to have lots of explainy voiceover. No. It works. There's just enough to make it work and to keep it all together. And this is a... It's a marvel of editing, I think, oh, with the amount absolutely. of footage that will have come out. You know, this is a 30-plus-hour run with four cameras plus someone holding a handy cam in the car plus a chase cam in a, a, a light aeroplane. Just to get that cut together to tell a coherent story is a work of art. And then to mix in all the period footage to tell the story of the coast-to-coast race mm. is absolute. It's an achievement, and it's directed and edited by J.F. Musial, who was there back in the day. I think you see him very, very um, very briefly in Alex Roy's apartment when they're discussing the run back in 2005. Also, um, when they are starting the run at uh, is it Manhattan Classic Car Club. Yes. You see both him and Spinelli in a very early 2000s get-up. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I would say with this that I found very slightly missing, I would have liked a slight bit more contemporary footage of Alex Roy and Dave Maher, the two drivers from the 2005 then-record setting run. I would have liked something from them in the contemporary... Uh, even if it was just a very short piece at the end, them reflecting on the run, because you've got everybody else from the 70s and early 80s reflecting on their runs and why they did it. And you don't get these guys looking back on it now in 2019, a long time after they've done it, talking about why they did it, would they go and do it again? You get a lot of the guys from the 70s and 80s saying, if someone rang me up tomorrow, even though I know how stupid it is, and they said, (laughs) we're putting it together again, we would do it. And I feel like I wanted to hear that from from Roy and Maher as well. See, I I disagree with that because I think it would end up like the last Harry Potter film where there's a big build-up and they're going for the record and there's that will they, won't they, have they lost time, have they done this? And you then get that payoff and that's kind of the ha moment. And if it was then, you know, the two of them sat in rocking chairs on a porch reminiscing about old times... I kind of feel like that's already been done. I think that's the beauty of the way this is edited, is that you get the history, the prep for their run, the reflections, you know, the anecdotes, the war stories, the reflections, while their story is building to a conclusion. And then I think once it's done, that really kind of has to be it. 
Yeah, I can see that. I suppose the other way it could have been done. Um, and Ice-T mentions in voiceover that subsequent to their 2005 record-setting run, the record has been broken mm. a number of times by other people doing the same run. Maybe a tiny bit of input from them might have been interesting to find out why they did it. But I think the documentary makes it clear that the, the Roy Maha run is the one because it was publicised once the statute of limitations had expired on what they'd done, because let's not beat about the bush, this is running sustained speeds in excess of twice the speed limit. Uh, some some driving that I would not class as questionable, but Alex Roy certainly says, you know, I like that kind of move on the gumball. I don't like it here where he's mm. weaving in and out of traffic. Uh, I think back to other runs that people have done in cars and think that's actually not that bad you didn't cut anyone up you didn't cause anyone to have to hit the brakes you didn't cause an accident but you do draw attention to yourself and it's a different kind of driving they want to make incredibly good time but they don't want to draw attention to themselves mm. um, i should also add to maintain the almost 100 percent record of mentioning the e39 m5 <laughs> on this podcast the 2005 run was famously done in alex roy's politzai um 144 e39 m5 le mans blue Yep. Totally debadged, apart from a double white stripe painted on the roof so they could be identified from their spotter plane, which is a cool touch. But it just goes to show that the E39 M5 is possibly the best Q car, fast, subtle sedan there is. It is the greatest car. I, I keep coming back to it. And I know we have the auto movie test where... I was sending you links to Auto Trader shortly after watching it, going, look what E39M5s. We watched it separately, and then I imagine both of us were immediately on to Auto Trader to see how much these are going for. And the answer is more than you think, and certainly more than either one of us can afford to spend right now. I, I would, I would love, genuinely, to do a replica of that car with the three aerials on the the uh, on the trunk lid, the four Garmin navs, the Valentine. All that. I, it would be fantastic to do, but you can't start with a 30 grand car now. No, it's like interesting that, to see the kind of cars that people have tried to do this subsequently in, you know, fast AMGs. The One of the overriding things seems to be massive fuel tanks. Mm. You know, stop as little as possible because that's what takes your average down. I found that quite fascinating to see that the that people who have subsequently attempted this, um, you can go and Google or, or look up on YouTube, Ed Bolian from VinWiki. Uh, he's the current holder of the record, and his Mercedes AMG had you know, two massive fuel tanks in the rear, plus the regular Mercedes long distance fuel tank. And that's how they were able to, to keep their average up, was to just not stop for fuel. Or anything else. <laughs> anyway, this is the second movie from this sort of, I don't want to call it a production house. Yeah, from uh, the Tan second Tangent in this Vector. Apex theme. Yeah, Tangent Vector. So they did a film called Apex, the story of the hypercar. Uh, back in 2015, which was entertaining and you know had a, a lot of stuff from people like Christian von Koenigsegg and the like. Uh, this is probably a bit deeper. This is a, a, a much deeper cut about something that I imagine not very many people know about. It's a little bit of a hot-button topic because, you know, it's cars going illegally fast, but it's a really interesting story. It's really well told, uh, and when it comes out, then it's it's worth seeing. As far as I know, it's out in the UK in December on iTunes, no idea when it's going to be on any of the streaming services. I hope they can get a release on something like Netflix or Amazon Prime so that more people get to see it. I know it's been screened in the States um, on TV, on NBC. On NBC, yeah. Yeah, so it's coming out in December. Uh, if you're a fan of driving and you like the idea of you know untold stories about driving, then mm, give this one a watch. Definitely, definitely. Talking of fast cars, we were tipped off 
by a guy called Demon Edwards, who's on Twitter as Delta Alpha Echo. Michael Fassbender is starting a journey to Le Mans with Porsche, and they've started putting out a series of blogs detailing his exploits. We are two episodes in now, and like a magazine hoarder, I have issues. It's <laughs> okay. Go 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 through. You tell me what okay. your issues are, and then I'll I'll see if I agree. So. The programme that he's doing is something that you can buy from Porsche, a customer racing programme run by Manti Racing, which kicks off with a week in Portimao where they teach you to drive Carrera Cup cars, and then you race around Europe, fully supported by the factory with coaches and, and what have you. However, the first episode of this was about seven minutes long, went straight into his first race at Hockenheim, I think it was, and is onboard footage of him. It's a bit of sort of chat in the in the pits with his engineer, and that's kind of it. It's essentially a gloriously produced vlog, and it tells you almost nothing about what he's doing, why he's doing it. It tells you almost nothing about his, his preparation, how he got there. It's kind of straight in, but it doesn't even tell you what the end goal is. And I can't help but feel it's a waste of the third best Steve Jobs, because he's just driving and looking moody and to what end. So it's a really weird narrative for me. I see what you mean. It drops you in media res straight in. It really could have done with a previous episode. It feels like you're dropped in on episode two In episode one feels like an episode two. You should have had the episode where he explains what he loves about cars, what he loves about driving, why he's doing this. And you see him learning at Portimao with Porsche. And then it should go into his first race and then it should carry on from there. And that would have made a lot more sense. Mm. They are a little bit shallow. You do get to see the mistakes he's making. And I do like the fact that they're not shying away from the fact that, you know, he's making mistakes. He stacks it into the pit wall at one stage. It's good to see that they're not trying to portray him as being immediately fast. And it's very interesting to hear, I think in the second episode, they talk about how he's starting to string things together and now the difference is in the details of nailing it exactly right every single time because that's what the pros do and -hmm. that's where you find those tenths and those halves of seconds that get you up there. It's very interesting to hear a professional driver coach teach someone who's clearly good at driving and explain to them what they have to do in order to get faster at this point. There's a great one where he's going into the Vidal chicane on the Nürburgring uh, Grand Prix Strecker and they say, oh, you're braking too much and then you're turning in too slowly. And he's what, what, 5, 10k too slow? And the coach kind of shrugs and goes, 20? (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's the difference between someone who is driving the car with their head and someone who's been driving the car you know, almost all their lives and just knows instinctively you turn in there, you take a massive load of curb and you bump the thing over and you carry way more <laughs> yes. speed, which is probably what he was trying to get at. It's a really good watch, but it does, like we say, drop you straight in. It feels like there's a missing preamble episode um it's on youtube Uh, if you just google michael fassbender porsche journey to le mans it's definitely worth following and seeing subsequent episodes this has a feel of um aston martin did something similar with paul hollywood where he was racing with the um what's the ice cream company beach dean Beach Dean. He was a race, racing a Beach Dean Aston Martin. You asked me about the ice cream companies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just thought you might know. Oh, true, true. Um, he was racing an Aston with Beach Dean and going to a special, I think it was an Aston only race that was at Le Mans as a precursor to the big race. And 
it felt a bit like that where you saw him kind of progress, you saw him get through the races and get to Le Mans and unfortunately he had an incident where someone else crashed and they just ran around behind the safety car and then the race was over so you didn't get that ultimately satisfying ending and I really hope for this Fassbender one that you do, there, that there is a satisfying ending to it because it would seem an awful waste of time to have this and then not be him racing at Le Mans and doing well. Fingers crossed. Mm. Speaking of Le Mans, um, very quickly, because we've rambled on a bit, uh, I've started seeing more and more stuff coming up around Le Mans 66, or Ford versus Ferrari, it is, as it is correctly known. Um, the radio started playing little clips from the trailer, uh, which leads me to laugh at Christian Bale's glorious Brummy accent. Well, that's Roy Force now, isn't it? <laughs> Your your collection of uh, impressions is is growing by the episode. So Jason Statham and a brummy Christian Bale and, mm. and Chris Freckleston, but that might have been in the pilot episode that we never uh, will broadcast. Oh yeah, no, we're never going to broadcast the pilot. <laughs> yes, I have a great Christopher Freckleston, which I will not bring out right now. But the the teasers are on the radio and. More things are starting to crop up. There was an article, I think, on Jalopnik about, you know, racing inaccuracies in the movie where you can see safer barriers behind the racing scenes from 1966. And I don't care. You know, yes, I know it's going to be inaccurate. This is Hollywood and they are, they're just averse to historical accuracy when it comes to this kind of thing. But the buzz behind it, means hopefully it's going to be a success. And if it's a success, we might see more of this kind of thing. So I'm excited for that. Um, I still think that Christian Bale's Brummy accident's a bit crap, but let's hope the movie is not. <laughs> How do you follow that? <laughs> well, let's get into the reviews for this episode. The theme for this show is famous racing names, and we've got two documentaries, both of which contain one evocative name from Formula One. And Marty, do you want to start off with McLaren? Yep. This is 2017's McLaren documentary. It's directed by Roger Donaldson, who has done a few movies that you might recognise. He's done a movie which is also about cars and racing. Sorry, not cars and racing, bikes and racing, uh, called The World's Fastest Indian, which I do want to cover in a future episode. I've never seen it, uh, but it's got Anthony Hopkins in it, and it's a, a... it looks like an interesting story, so I do want to see that. He also did Cocktail with Tom Cruise. Really? Apparently so, according to the IMDb. Wow. No, no racing cars in that at all, but, you know, there's no bar flare in McLaren. It's clear that Roger Donaldson is a petrol head and a fan of Bruce McLaren. The documentary is focused entirely on Bruce McLaren and how he began his racing career, how he raced in Formula One, how he went to form his eponymous McLaren racing team. And it only covers the portion where Bruce McLaren was alive and racing and running his team. It's no spoiler to say that Bruce McLaren died early. He was only 32 when he was killed in a testing accident at Goodwood. All the history of McLaren, the racing team that went on from there, that went on to be uh, run by Ron Dennis and have huge success in the 80s and 90s with Ayrton Senna and Mika Hakkinen and so on. None of that is mentioned bar a very, very short little um, like advertorial blip of all their cars at the very end of the documentary. This is about Bruce McLaren, the mechanic, the racer, the team owner, and constructor constructor too yeah i've seen this a few times it's not the deepest dive into blues mclaren's life it's a little shallow it doesn't there's no conflict um it doesn't dig into why he wanted to do the things he was doing but what it does do you is show how much he achieved in the relatively short amount of time that he was racing at the top level this is a man who won four formula one races against some of the best drivers in the era 
He started a team that dominated Can-Am racing. He started a team in IndyCar that went on to win three Indy 500s. And then he he started a Formula One team that has subsequently won uh, 12 Drivers' Championships and eight Constructors' Championships. Not all of those in under his tenure, but it's still an astonishing achievement. And he is one of only two drivers ever to win a Formula One race in a car that's got their name on the front. Oh, one of two. One of two. Can you get the other one? It's an easy one. Brabham? That's it. Jack Brabham is the only other guy. Jack Brabham and Blues McLaren, the only two people to win a Formula One race in a car that they constructed, which is a fairly astounding stat. So the documentary starts out with his life in New Zealand and how he came to be a racing driver um, how he got started using these old kind of clapped out machinery and how you know, Kiwis have to be resourceful and, and very thrifty with the kind of stuff they've got because there's not a lot of money and there's, not, there's a, a sort of very DIY get stuck in kind of attitude out there towards motor racing, which he then brought over when he started his own team. He was very much hands on and you get a very big feel from the documentary about how pivotal he was to that team in the early days and how he drove it and he inspired it and it's amazing how much he got done in those 32 years. That's, that's the thing that really resonates out from this documentary is the number of achievements, you know, winning Formula One races against people like Sterling Moss <laughs> and all the rest of them is not to be sniffed at. Racing with Chris Amon, you know, um, Denny Holm racing with, in Can-Am, all sorts of names that jump out at you as being extraordinarily famous. And then there's this Kiwi with bright orange cars with his name on the front and the, the little Kiwi bird um, emblem that the, somebody had drawn for him. It's not as exciting a documentary as, say, something like Senna. The racing stuff is is great footage and it's lovely period film with loads of grain and, and so on. And there's stuff you haven't seen in there. But they don't attempt to make any drama out of any of it. The only time they do is when they have some slightly jarring uh, contemporary reconstructions of what it was like back in the day. Um, McLaren left his parents in New Zealand and came over to the UK and he used to communicate by recording tapes onto reel-to-reel tape and sending them back to his parents who would then gather around the living room and they would listen with their friends as to his exploits. So rather than writing letters, you get to hear his voice. Um, and they've got an actor doing voiceover doing those and some actors pretending to be parents and family. That's a little weird. There's a moment in the middle where they want to tell a story about mechanics dicking about in the factory. Oh, yeah. um, and they resort to animation, which they don't really use anywhere else in the in the documentary. And it, it, it jumps out a bit. It sticks out. Uh, it's an interesting story, but I think it would be much better told just by the by the talking heads giving you that story and, and laughing about it. Mm. I don't think it really needed the animation. And the only time where they really tweak the emotions is the inevitable climax. And much like Senna, you go into this, if you have any sense of Formula One history, you know that Bruce McLaren died in a testing accident at Goodwood. And they do lead up to that and you you can feel it coming and they have a recreation of someone driving around Goodwood in a McLaren M8 and they have him walking away from the accident i think no. um do they i can't because re- i maybe i'm getting that mixed up because mclaren themselves did a promo where they they'd got somebody reading a voiceover about what he'd achieved and he was walking away from the accident yeah. with the tire marks and everything so maybe that maybe i'm confusing it with that but there's a few bits of sort of contemporary reconstruction that don't really work for me there is that crescendo to the movie that 
it sags in a bit in the middle where he's putting together his Formula One team and, you know, the things are going quite well and it's sort of check off at success after success. Mm. Um, the emotional climax of the movie of Bruce McLaren dying in that testing accident, he shouldn't have even been there. The regular tester was supposed to be, I think Denny Holm was supposed to be testing, but he'd had an accident in the IndyCar and burnt his hands with because the fuel they use burns with an invisible flame. And so they didn't realise that he was on fire and he'd had really badly burned hands and he couldn't drive. So Bruce McLaren had landed from flying somewhere, jumped in the car, wasn't even supposed to be testing. And they did the fateful one more run, you know, that you say you never do. Not one more lap or anything. You you call time on it and you just want to do one more run before lunch. And that was the fateful run. And when you hear about the number of things he achieved, it, it feels like such a crying shame, such an enormous loss. And the interviewees who are talking about it, to a man, all crumble in front of the camera when they're talking about it, one of whom even breaks the fourth wall effectively and and says to the director who's clearly prompting the the interview, and he just says, sorry, Roger, I can't, because he's he's so emotional about recalling the time and the day. It's it's a thoroughly enjoyable documentary about how McLaren... The name came to be in Formula One. If you know nothing about Bruce McLaren, you'll be fascinated to hear how he got his start and how the team was built and the kinds of things they were able to do. It's not something that's going to leave you feeling quite the, the way that you would with Senna. It's not as dramatic as that. He wasn't a rock star in the way that Senna was a rock star. He wasn't that transcendent figure that everyone looked to. He was just a bloody good racing driver and a bloody good bloke team boss. <laughs> and a very nice bloke. Yeah, and a bloody good bloke. Yeah, who set up a racing team that still races today and as of the last couple of years, races back in the papaya orange of the McLarens in the 70s, which something as a McLaren fan myself, I find very respectful and a delight to see after the, the endless grey and silver of the Ron Dennis McLaren days. So there's McLaren, 2017 documentary worth looking out. Have you seen the statue at Goodwood in the back of the paddock? I have not. I've been to Goodwood a lot. And I must admit, when I was watching the documentary, I thought, there must be some kind of thing to Bruce there. I must go and find it. If you wander away from race control, across the back of the garages, towards the flying club, there's a little garden with a statue of uh, Bruce. It's just kind of tucked away in one corner. I'm going to go find that next time I'm there. Well worth a visit. Yeah. Moving on, my film for this week is similarly a one-word title, but this one, also from 2017, is Williams. This is the story of Frank Williams and his life from boyhood to about the late 80s, early 90s. For those who may not be familiar, it's the same Frank Williams who runs or who owns rather the Formula One team that bears his name. It's now his daughter, Claire, who's running the team. But in the late 80s, Frank had a significant car accident, became a quadriplegic and ever since has been confined to a wheelchair. Still been going to races, he's still been involved, but he's famously in, in a wheelchair. What makes this documentary really interesting is that although it's about Frank, there are really four main characters. You've got Frank himself, who is in uh, period photos and period film, but they're also interviewing him now in the Williams factory. His daughter, Claire, also contributes and is brilliantly candid yet respectful. 
you've then got his best friend from boyhood until now, a guy called uh, David Brody. And you've got his wife, Virginia Williams, or, or Ginny, as she was more commonly known. Unfortunately, Ginny died a few years ago. And as part of her her life while Frank was going through his rehabilitation after his accident, she wrote a book with a friend of hers. And in order to make this book, they spoke for hours and her friend recorded everything that went on on these micro cassettes. So what it becomes is the story of Frank Williams and Ginny Williams told from the perspective of both of them. And it's quite interesting to actually have somebody giving their side of a story. And it's been edited together really, really well to tell this story of what their relationship was from almost like the first time they met and she was due to be married to somebody else. Frank was started to get into the racing car business and eventually going through to his rehabilitation. What does come across is that both Ginny and Frank are very stiff upper lip. They're very reserved. They're very... There are things that you don't talk about. Fortunately, Dave, who's Frank's best mate, is completely the opposite. He he adds all the colour to Frank's 20s and 30s and the things they used to get up to. And there's also... Uh, Ginny's brother, there's Ginny's friend, there's all sorts of people adding to this story. And what comes across actually evolves kind of through the, the film. It becomes very clear very, very early that Frank is obsessed about racing and that nothing else really matters to the extent that he's struggling to get this Formula One team off the ground. She'll sell her flat to help. There's a story, somebody said if at the time, if you'd given him eight quid to go buy fish and chips, he'd go and buy eight spark plugs and you wouldn't see him for three days. It was all absolutely about the racing. And even Claire says, when they're going through small family photos, Frank never went on a family holiday. He was too busy working. So the kids and Ginny would go off and they'd have a lovely time and they'd come back. And I don't think Frank sometimes really realised that they were gone. And it's quite interesting hearing these accounts from Ginny herself as to what drew her to Frank because certainly for me I've only ever known him as an older man in a wheelchair and she says how dashing he was and how he had this sort of piercing gaze which is backed up by these photos and film from the era and you think he has a charisma which I don't think ever really sort of came across later in life. The, the film is not afraid to show him in a bad light. It's not afraid to go through the details of when he ran at massive debts trying to run the team and ended up selling it to Walter. Is it Walter Wolf? Not Walter Wolf. Yeah, Walter Wolf. Wasn't, wasn't Walter Wolf also the guy <laughs> from Pulp Fiction? Uh, no, that was just called The Wolf. The Wolf, that was it. He also talks, though, about he was very close friends with Piers Courage, they, were, they shared a flat together and then the opportunity came for Frank to run Piers in a Formula One car and he was killed. And later Senna died also in a Williams. There were two things that kind of really struck me about that. One was he said the day after Piers died, he had to go and ring his wife and tell him that Piers had died. And he just says, and that's all I'm going to say about it nothing else you know the, the, the guard goes up the other thing was when they were talking about Senna as well and obviously the impact that Senna dying had on Frank the interviewer just off camera says well, how did that make you feel and Frank said far from well and to have what something is quite so impactful 
the, the the stiff upper lip, that sense that you don't talk about things, you don't respond. Claire said that at Ayrton's funeral, Ginny said to her, don't cry. This isn't your day to cry. This is for other people. And all of that, you know, really, I would say sturdy Englishness, just repressing everything. And there's one theme to the film, really, which is these silences, these pauses. They're allowed to linger that tell you something is being unsaid. I think one of the great examples of this from this film was when they're talking to Claire and they're talking to Jonathan, which are Frank's two kids. They say that they don't get on, that there's a rift. And the interviewer says, is it because of the business? And Claire goes, yes. And there's nothing more said about it. But there's just this lingering sense of sadness and loft. There's a story untold there. There's so much they're not telling you. I haven't seen this. I have not... Boycotted is the wrong word. I, I know the broad strokes of how the documentary tells the story and I don't want to watch it because I know how Frank treated his family and it makes me very, very cross. And I know that he doesn't explain himself and that makes me very, very cross. And while I used to watch F1 to watch Williams Cars win back in the early 90s and and early 2000s, I was watching them for the drivers in the car, not Williams themselves. So I was watching to see Damon Hill win and I was watching to see, you know, Mark Webber do well or even Nico Rosberg in his debut, Jensen Button in 2000. It was always about the drivers for me rather than the team and... It's probably no secret to anyone who has a passing interest in Formula One that Williams have had a dip in form, to put it mildly. And lots of people say, oh, you know, everyone's a Williams fan. We all want them to do better and to be back up there. And I must admit, I am the dissenting voice that says, no, I don't. Because I think Frank is entirely responsible for where Mm -hmm. the team is now. And a good portion of that is due to the way he has behaved with his family. So there's two things that become really apparent, I think, with the Williams story as this film progresses. The first is that Patrick Head comes along and overnight the fortunes change. They get the Saudi sponsorship. They then get into the classic blue, white, yellow cannon livery which I will always love. And, you know, you then start getting Frank Durney talking. And Frank Durney is hugely underrated. One, he has a great taste in jumpers. And two, he stands in front of a hi-fi system with these, like, woven bamboo speakers. And I'd love to know more about that, let alone anything else in the film. Um, But also, once Frank has his accident and he's touch and go, Patrick has to step up to run the team, which he does with a plum. But also, Ginny becomes much more part of the story. You realise what she's given up to stay with Frank and to support him, what she's doing for the team as well. And there's a moment where she gives the... She collects the Constructors' Trophy for the British Grand Prix just following Frank's accident. And she's become such a driving force... 
But somebody says, everybody looks at Frank and go, well, he's the one in the wheelchair. He's the one who's going through all of these tough times. Not realising, or at least not regarding, that Ginny is looking after him full time, is keeping the team running, is you know keeping the family together and doing all of these things. And they talk about things like Frank's infidelity. And even Claire sort of says, you know, we know that it happened, but we never talk about it. There's a surprise. Well, but the strength that Ginny needed to to just keep going, I think she comes out of this incredibly well. And Claire says that she would have made a great F1 team boss. And I think particularly as the film goes on later, you think absolutely she could have. Peter Windsor, who was once, I think, commercial director of Williams, as well as going on later to be a journalist and a broadcaster, he wrote a a blog for the Amologato Watch Company website all about the rift of what's happened with Jonathan, what's happened with Claire, and simplifying it massively. Jonathan was the chosen one. He was the scion. He went off to GP2, invested heavily in the iSport team, and got this group together who were mechanics and designers and race engineers and managers and then just as he was sort of due to step forward frank makes the decision that actually claire's going to run the team didn't that decision not just come from frank but also from adam parr and toto wolf who were shareholders in the team at the time uh looking at the timeline that it happened i think it was some time before but i think it would also have it would have been brewing over a number of years because jonathan was working in the lower formulas like say for years sort of building up to this moment yeah so it did come out of left field for anyone who follows formula one you would expect, given that you know your son is shown to be a, an extremely good manager of a junior Formula team, and you are Frank Williams, you are not in the best of health all yep. the time, it's fair yeah. to say, and you could do with stepping back for reasons of health, you'd expect him to just slide into that spot. And it came as a shock to hear that it was going to be his daughter, Claire, who I think had been running or been working at Williams as marketing or PR she'd, or something she, along yeah, those lines. Through, she'd sort of worked her way up through that. Commercial managers, yeah. yeah. Not a straightforward route to running a team, it would have to be said, and possibly not the obvious choice. And so uh, the frustrating thing, I know how mean, effectively, it's a, it's a very simple word, Frank was to his family. And this documentary, as I understand it, doesn't say why. It lays out all of the things that happened but there's no analysis and there's nothing admitted from any of the family because they won't talk about it. I think that... And so everything is inferred. To an extent, there is a bit towards the end where after Ginny had died, Frank started just living in a flat at the factory, which he, he had anyway. But it was it was just that thing of the team is everything. Formula One is everything. And I think it was Ginny's brother said it wasn't until she died that he actually realised how much he loved her and how much she meant to him. And I think Peter Windsor also said that had Ginny still been alive, she could have brought the family back together in a way that Frank just cannot. One thing that I will absolutely say is that Claire Williams is a really great interviewee because she has enough savvy to know what she can talk about. She has enough savvy to know what is off limits in one way or another. But between those two, she's very, very candid to the extent that in this, she's reading sections of her mother's book 
outlining her frustrations about her husband to Frank, and she's welling up with tears and finding it really difficult. She says in one of the, I think it's one of the Netflix uh, Drive to Survive series, she's there sort of saying, well, sometimes I wake up in the night and I don't know if I'm right to run a Formula One team. And even the Beyond the Grid podcast she did, which is well worth a listen because I think if you watch... That's a really good episode. It's really good, but it's also a really good companion to this because you can see the themes from that coming out in her. So you can see she idolises her father for very good reason. But she is driven to achieve the way that she sees he's achieved. She's working to, I think, go after his... um, his his gratitude is you know his approval is is tied up in how she runs i think she probably she would probably say his team it's not an easy watch i think it's revealing i would i would recommend it even if you're not a williams fan because it is a human drama more than anything else there is there's bits of racing they talk about when ground effect came in and they talk about a few sort of technical things that they did to make the car faster and it's I think it's notable that as the team grows they talk more technically so Frank Durney starts talking about the work they did with aerodynamics and getting it ready for the next race and so on as a prelude then to why they suddenly started succeeding whereas before this had been a real struggle but it's by no means a technical documentary it is absolutely the story of a family it's heartbreaking to see what's happened and I think to allow a documentary that candid, that honest, is incredibly brave but is makes it into a very satisfying documentary to watch. I want to watch it. I do. I just don't know how I'm going to get through it and not get very, very cross with Frank in particular and the Williams family in general for their inability to communicate and their British repress everything, stiff upper lipidness. Because I think it's actually, it's poisoning the family and the team. If you look at the state of Williams in 2019, they are a shadow of their former selves. They're still too top heavy. There's too many people there. There's too many people who don't know their job. It's being run by somebody who doesn't know how to run a Formula One team. I would be very interested, want to know more about the Claire and Jonathan story, and I don't know if that will ever be told, and I don't know if there's ever a right time, but... There's a really interesting book to be written... There really is. ...a few decades from now. So you've got two eras of Williams. You've got the, the success years, and then you've got the wilderness years, and maybe, we don't know, maybe they'll come back and... and Fingers crossed. ...do what McLaren have managed to do this year and, and achieve respectability again after missing the boat and... and because of Frank's stubbornness and unwillingness to sell the team out to partnership, you know, the, the most he did was partner with BMW back mm. in the BMW early, Williams days in the early 2000s. But they made, you know, they wanted to buy the team and he wouldn't sell it. So they went and bought Sauber. Um, now he does look like he made the right choice because as soon as the economic climate changed, BMW dropped Sauber and were swiftly out of F1 and that could have been Williams. Mm. But the problem he faces is he's missed a chance to become a Mercedes. Or um, Sauber are still in F1. Sauber are, but they're now called Alfa Romeo yes. and they would not be in F1 had they not been saved by a finance company and you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. 
But I must admit, your your summary has made me want to go and watch the movie if I can let go of my pre- uh, um, prejudices enough to go and see it. One thing I find very interesting is the contrast between Frank Williams and and Bruce McLaren is that Bruce McLaren appeared to be a very rounded and, and sympathetic individual. There's, there's a wonderful epitaph he wrote for uh, his teammate, Timmy Mayer, and you can't believe that someone who is also a mechanic and a Formula One driver can be so literary. And I'm going to read this out because I think it bears repeating. The news that he had died instantly was a terrible shock to all of us. But who is to say that he had not seen more, done more and learned more in his few years than many people do in a lifetime? To do something well is so worthwhile that to die trying to do it better cannot be foolhardy. It would be a waste of a life to do nothing with one's ability, for I feel that life is measured in achievement, not in years alone. That could come out of a Hollywood script. It certainly shouldn't be coming out of the mouth of a Formula One driver and team <laughs> boss. Yep. So that's McLaren and Williams, two famous racing names. And we're going to jump into our online content highlight items, and I'm going to be really original and bring in a Bruce McLaren video. I had a choice of two here. I had McLaren's tuned Bruce McLaren uh, cartoon from a few years ago when they were making these little animated shorts. Which is brilliant. It's a really good... It's probably better than the documentary in some respects in giving you a precy of his uh, racing exploits and, you know, the history of him. Uh, it's another really good tribute, but it's told in about five minutes rather than an hour and a half. But I've actually chosen a video called Being Bruce, Driving Bruce McLaren's M6A at Donington. This is from Motorsport Magazine uh, with Dickie Meaden at the wheel of Bruce McLaren's M6A Can-Am car around the Donington Park circuit. And it's... Not had a huge number of views for this kind of thing, something like 40,000 or so. But it's a wonderful insight into what it's like to drive one of these cars. And this is a car that Bruce McLaren drove and how hard it is to drive something so physical and so noisy and so powerful and to realise that this isn't even the most powerful of these Can-Am cars you could have. It gives you a real insight into the kind of driver you had to be and the kind of driver that Bruce McLaren was to idly hop in and out of these cars. You know, when he was doing his testing, he'd be hopping in and out of the Formula One car, the Indy car, the, the Can-Am car. There's a fascinating story in the film, which I forgot to mention, that he did testing for the Ford GT40 at Le Mans. Yeah. He was a test driver for that, so it was not just Ken Miles and the like. It's you know, one of the reasons why the car was able to be developed so well is because Bruce McLaren was hugely sought after as a test driver. Um, and you get a feel for that from this little piece. There's actually a Ford GT40 currently for sale on Race Cars Direct that was driven by Bruce McLaren. It doesn't have a price. Is this the race-winning one? Yes, the black um something else i forgot to mention he's one of these people you go oh and he did that he won the 24 hours of le mans in 1966 um yeah he he won in a black gt40 which is currently for sale in germany yeah if you have to ask you can't afford it oh god yes (laughs) but yes being bruce driving bruce mclaren's m6a at donnington if you want to hear the noise of glorious V8 unleashed it's fantastic I'm also going to give a shout out to uh, Motor Trend's Best Drivers Car Series it's that time of year where the magazines uh, and the online portals start bringing out the best of the year videos and articles and Motor Trend's Best Drivers Car is an annual treat for me 
Um, it is subscription only, so stop being tight and pay the five pounds or whatever it is to to subscribe <laughs> to their. They have all of the Top Gear streaming now as well. Um, so if you don't have all the Top Gears and you can't see them on Dave, then you can stream all 25 series of Top Gear from Motor Trend. But the uh, best driver's cars got a bunch of really great head-to-heads, and then what they been calling for the last nine years the world's greatest drag race where they get all the contenders <laughs> onto a runway uh, in this case it's the vandenberg uh, runway in the united states they have a tremendously stilted intro with some u.s military people and then they race them down the runway and i think bruce mclaren would approve that there's a mclaren senna on the start line and he would approve even more when you see by how much it wastes every other car <laughs> spoilers so for my pick of the week, I've also stuck with one of the greatest sports cars of all time, and that is a titanium silver BMW E46 M3 in manual on 18-inch wheels. And this is from the Best Motoring channel on YouTube. Which Sadly missed the Best Motoring. It, it, it is literally the Best Motoring channel on, on YouTube. There's, there's two videos of the E46. The first one is about a five-minute review of the E46 M3 in Japanese. So if you fancy knowing what a Japanese person thinks of it and you know Japanese, then go and give that a watch. However, this is the drift battle. So you've got, I think, eight people in race suits. You've got an E46 M3, a Skyline R34, you've got a Lancer 7, you've got an Impreza, an RX-7, a 996, and a Honda NSX. The thing that I love about these, aside from the fact that it is just people in race suits just all obviously having a really good laugh, is the picture-in-picture. So this is, I mean, it's 4x3, it's standard definition, but every single car that they cut to has a pedal cam, and you can see them, you know, working the wheel, working the pedals, and it's it's just brilliantly Japanese, and I, I I love it to bits. It's the noises they make when they're driving, and they'll you know one of them pulls like oh, <laughs> as one of them pulls alongside the other, or slightly out drags them, or one of them makes a mistake. They're very excitable, and I really enjoy watching it because it's clear, like you say, they're having a great laugh. They're giving these cars an absolute pasting <laughs> and they do they not normally do this around like a, one of those really small circuits that you only ever see in Gran Turismo it's uh might be scuba or something like that it's oh it is uh yeah, yeah it's scuba which also stages the the famous mx5 endurance races but that's a different uh, story for a different podcast one of them is actually um Naomi Hattori, who I think raced in a Japanese Super GT and a McLaren F1 GTR. Oh, they're all racing drivers. They're all pretty handy. And I, I really love watching these because, yeah, you get the pedal cam. They're all putting these things through their paces. Um, I can't remember which one wins. I have seen this video. I can't remember which car wins. <laughs> But they're always worth a watch. There's another great one with um, Porsche 996 Turbo and a few other sort of uh, boosty quick cars that's also fun to watch. I've just found the result of the second battle. Why nobody's picked this up as as an ongoing format like Iron Chef? I don't know. I'm not actually sure which car won because it's only the the cars that have got uh, uh, initials for the names that have actually actually been Roman characters. 
anyway go give it a watch it's it's a great weird fundamentally japanese thing and i wish people would do more of this because it's just great fun fall down the best motoring rabbit hole because you'll watch this one and then you'll watch a bunch of other ones and then you'll watch more and then like <laughs> us you will lament the loss of best motoring because it is a loss it is um we've got one more thing uh which I, let me, I don't, let, it doesn't really fit anywhere. Let, do you let, want to do let this? Me, let me do this. I have to do this. It's this is our first so, and, and finally. finally. <laughs> yeah. Right. The headline is: Was Kit from Knight Rider driven by a hidden dwarf? Which <laughs> that alone is just like you have my interest. Go on. So there was a clip that went round Twitter about two weeks ago and we had one of our uh, listeners, Mike, sent it our way, of Michael Knight pulling up in a kit and you can see a hand behind his seat seemingly pushing the door open, holding it closed, something like that. And this article goes into actually really interesting depth about what the cars were that actually... Uh, made kit so why they were the way they were how they were used in production how they hid stunt drivers so that kit could arrive on on demand and then michael could jump in and drive off it's it's quite a funny little clip but actually it's one of those things where the truth is almost better than the, the fiction that you're thinking of I wish there was just an army of Hollywood dwarves that go around driving cars. There's a little more to it than that, but we'll put the link in the show notes because it's, it's, it is quite an interesting piece. And it actually makes you think about how the the, uh, the movie magic of these things is made. So, Especially back in the day of Knight Rider, you know, now they'd probably do it differently, but... You know, right. You can do remote control cars now, full size remote control cars. Whereas back then, it was all movie magic, smoke and mirrors. People dressed up as seats, all sorts of um, interesting cheats. We will not give away whether or not it is a hidden dwarf. It might be, it might not. You don't know. But uh, yeah, check the article out because uh, the little video clip is worth its weight in gold just on its own. We'll uh, we'll put a link both to the to the Twitter post that spawned this and the and the article in the show notes. But that's it for this episode. If you think we've got it right or got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod, on our AutoMovie Podcast Facebook page, or email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. We're off to go and work out how quickly we can do coast to coast in the UK. I'm fairly sure we can beat 28 hours and 50 minutes. Mm-hmm.